Redfield Arts Audio. Birthdays are those kind of events that, um, well, they can sneak up on us and then bam, all of a sudden it's another year, a year's gone by. For those of you who have been joining us and listening to our podcasts, you know that we podcast uh, audio drama and interviews that revolve around Edgar Allan Poe, a character and uh, a man whose life and works have fascinated me. As you know, we've produced a marvelous audiobook, Jeffrey Combs in Nevermore, an evening with Edgar Allan Poe, a recording that was recorded live in Boston where Poe was born. It's a wonderful one-person show that Jeffrey Combs plays. Uh, it's on Audible now, written by Dennis Paoli and directed by the late Stuart Gordon. We've done other Poe-based audio drama, and um, Edgar Allan Poe was born January 19th, 1809, and every year the anniversary of his birth rolls around, and we try to look for new ways to celebrate his life and work. One of the projects that um, we are still working on and uh, hope to have completed, which has been delayed because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, is our audio biography, our dramatized biography of Edgar Allan Poe called Alone, the Life of Poe. Uh, more on that in future podcasts, but we'd like to share with you a conversation that I had with the fellow who runs the Edgar Allan Poe Society in Baltimore. His name is Jeffrey A. Savoy, and Jeff has been a great friend for a number of years and uh, keeps me on my toes factually when writing about Edgar Poe. If there is any one man who knows Poe, I would think that it would be Jeffrey A. Savoy. So here's a phone conversation that was recorded uh, between myself and Jeffrey A. Savoy of the Edgar Allan Poe Society, Baltimore. Enjoy. Happy Poe's birthday, Jeffrey. Thank you for talking to me. I'm very excited to talk to you about all things Edgar Allan Poe, because how can one forget that we, we, we all celebrated in Baltimore the bicentennial? Uh, his 200th. Right. And um, yeah, here we are. Here right. we are. I need to, I, I've known you for a little bit um, and mostly, well, I think directly because of the events at Westminster Hall where many Poe fans know that Poe is buried along with uh, uh, Mariah Clem, Muddy, and Virginia uh, through the events that Jeff Jerome produced. Although uh, we were at Towson University together. That's true. We found out about that later. Yeah, you would not have known me, but you were in almost all of the, uh, the theatrical productions. I was a maniac, and I acted in... I was just doing plays back-to-back -back at Towson University in the theater department, and I minored in film, so I was kind of trapped in, in those two buildings other than my regular courses. But um, So that that is kind of... But it, it's mainly from those events, and you would... Uh, have a display of some items that the um, Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore uh, were caretakers of. A, and, a lot of them actually uh, were from my from my own collection. The Poe Society doesn't own that much, but uh, and I tried to set up a, whatever the theme of that particular celebration was. I usually try to do something that tied in with it. So if they were doing something with Poe and Griswold, I would do some Griswold-related materials and. They did one on Poe and uh, the women in his life, so I had something with you know, Sir Helen Whitman and Francis Osgood and, and Virginia. I didn't really obviously. know. I did. Yeah, I didn't really know that they were from your collection. I thought that they were. I know that some items were held by Enoch Pratt Library. Yes, and those. Um, and yes, even though we own those, we we don't take them out of the library. It's, it's yeah. a little bit. Yeah, you know, the ownership is a little complicated there. When we when we actually tested lock of Poe's hair. I had to get special mm. permission, which they objected to, although I just saw a TV show where 
Jeff Corman was talking about having tested the hair, and they don't mention us at all, which is kind of interesting. But oh. the information the information is more important than than the credit. I wanted I wanted to have this conversation and share this with other Poe fans because, you know, like I said, I've known you for a bit, and the invaluable font of information uh, for anyone, casual or particularly academic. Uh, who want to know about Poe's life and Poe's work is really the website, eapo.org, that you are constantly updating as uh, information about his life and work emerges. It's invaluable. It is, um, if I, I remember correctly, when I looked the last update, uh, you mentioned that there are over 6,000 pages on the website, comprehensive uh, biographies of Poe, uh, the entire works of Edgar Allan Poe, plus multiple uh, revisions and and additions, Um, the Poe log, a great timeline of Poe's life, which a student can go to and in a a flash uh, see events in Poe's life. And so this is beyond the casual Poe fan where uh, they they might love him enough, his life and work, that they're going to correct how you spell Alan when it's misspelled often. Um, and 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 when did you? When, all right, let's let's just start at the beginning. When did you get the Poe bug? When did you when did you first? Uh, when did his work first speak to you? And when did you uh, get so uh, roll up your sleeves and uh, get so interested in his work? When when did that happen with you? Was that before college or college? Well, I'm I'm not actually not terribly interesting myself, but maybe the story will have <laughs> some resonance with other people um, and be somewhat similar. Yeah. Um, like many adolescent boys, I was interested in Poe because he was cool. Uh, we had the Basil Rathbone, Vincent Price recordings on Cadmium label. Well, we had them, right. of course, there was LPs in those days. Uh, I now have them on CD as well, but. Uh, and my uncle gave my brother a set of Funk and Wagnalls edition, 1904, a ten-volume set, missing at least one volume of Poe's works. And my brother held on to it for a couple of years, and then he decided he needed more shelf space for his monster models. So he was gonna—he was just gonna <laughs> throw it away. And I wanted them uh, because, again, Poe po was cool. Yeah. And I had memorized and read The Raven when I was in second grade. I don't think I did a very good job of it. but uh, Second grade. Wow. So at least second grade was, would be the earliest I could be absolutely certain that I had a, a, a real Poe connection. Well, see, and, that's serious, and that's hardcore. Most people, they, they mention maybe The Raven or The Telltale Heart in high school, but this is pretty cool. Well, again, you know, The Raven seemed like a supernatural poem, even though... In, in a, a more accurate reading, it probably isn't really. Poe doesn't intend it to be that. He does want some supernatural overtones, but he doesn't mean it as that. He has a rather pedantic explanation for for the Raven that he gives in the philosophy of composition. Yeah. But um, but yeah, when I was in second grade, and then I kind of lost interest in junior and senior high school. I was I was more interested in other authors uh, like Dickens. Mm. Nothing terribly seriously, but I I was reading more of their works and less of less of Poe. And then in college, I, uh, my best friend, uh, Chris Scharf, became the assistant curator at the Poe House. It was an unpaid internship. Uh, uh, we, were, we were both English majors at, this, at Towson University, Towson State University in those days. And he was telling me all these things about Poe that were not what I thought I remembered, what I had learned in, in high school mm-hmm. and earlier. And... Uh, Neither of us had any money. I had access to a photocopier, so we would borrow things from the library. And I had, we actually photocopied the entire Quinn biography of Poe because neither of us could afford to buy a copy oh, uh, wow. at that point. This was uh, in the 80s. So um, you know, I was photocopying a lot of these things. We were reading all this material, and it was just fascinating that it was just a completely different world than what I was used to seeing. And Poe kind of went from a casual interest into a bit of a cause. He seemed like he was very misunderstood, and uh, there were so many mysteries and things, little different avenues to explore, and uh, that was very interesting. I was an English major, but it was fairly clear that I was not going to go to graduate school. I was not going to go into teaching, Hmm. and this was kind of a way of keeping my hand in with that. I ended up programming computers for a living. 
which has been okay, but it's it's not a very satisfying in terms of personal interest. It just and creativity you know, and right. There's not a, there's some creativity. And there's not there's not as much creativity in, in programming as one might like, but anyway, yeah. it's, pay, it's it's paid the bills. Uh, but yeah. it didn't really feed my interest in literature. And since I did not go to graduate school, I didn't go to teach. We joined the Post Society, both of us, in 1983. There was an article in the Sun Papers. The Post Society seeks new blood. I think that was the headline. Now let me let me interrupt you because I'm going to assume like many things in the world today, and here we are, that there is a generation that carries something forward, and they begin to quite literally die out. Uh, membership drops off. Uh, the Post Society uh, in Baltimore has a long storied history. And just to recap for the casual casual listener at the moment, um, it's formed, if I believe, check me where I'm wrong here, before you join the Poe Society, they're, they're formed on a Poe birthday in the early 1920s. Like 21. And they are responsible. Well, I take that back. I believe it's 1923. 21 is the Poe Museum in Richmond. I think they're, they're a couple years earlier than we are. And, uh, and, but, but we do trace um, back through several earlier organizations that go all the way back to the Poe Monument of 1875. Right, right. So. Yeah, there's a group of people uh, wanting to give Poe a, a proper monument uh, uh, in uh, Westminster burial grounds where he is buried. And um, the, the, the famous story is that uh, a, a woman, a teacher, uh, rallied to raise uh, pennies for Poe. A lot of school children contributed, a lot of business people, literary fans, and, and, and they, it took years to get this monument made, and it was finally erected and put into place. In it's actually a little more complicated than that, and, and maybe interesting, hopefully, hopefully so. Um, shortly after Poe was buried in 1849, there were complaints from people who came to visit where he was, was buried that his grave was neglected, he did not have a tombstone, right. um, and... So in newspapers and magazines, as early as 1854, there were complaints from people that this author had been mistreated during life, and now that he was dead, was really not getting the recognition and honor that he deserved. And uh, there were people who wanted to move him from Baltimore. Baltimore obviously didn't seem to appreciate him enough. He should be moved to wherever they were suggesting. Uh, And that effort was gaining steam just then the Civil War hit, and obviously that interrupted any kind of effort of Everything. that sort. Yeah, sure. uh, and then once that ended, uh, in 1865, the uh, School Teachers Association in Baltimore, at their meeting October the 7th, which which was the anniversary of Post death, got together and were debating, because the school, uh, Westminster, the, the, West, the Western Female School, um, yeah. was actually where the law library is now. So it, it overlooked the cemetery. Right. Yeah. And one of the teachers there was Sarah Sigourney Rice. She taught uh, literature and elocution, uh, and elocution was her big thing. Elocution was a, was all the rage in those days, anyway. Uh, just people learning public speaking and how to present, read a poem or a section of text, you know, mm-hmm. sort of dramatized without actually being an actor uh, kind of presentation for public performance. So she was selected as the person to run this group, this committee. Uh, and they did hold the first fundraiser was a, a, a poetry reading that was done at the school, and uh, you know, so they were doing elocution as, as parts of a way to raise money. They didn't really raise all that money from the pennies for Poe, but that was one of the campaigns that they that they did. Uh, it took them a number of years. The original design was rather more ambitious than they originally had expected. Um, and they probably would not have succeeded in funding it at all, except George W. Childs, who was a very wealthy publisher in Philadelphia, who I believe he was born in Baltimore, but knew Poe, personally uh, had known Poe. And he came forward and gave the remaining $500 that was needed, and uh, that allowed them actually to build the monument. And that's a lot of money in those days. It's a lot of money. Just to jump quickly through the timeline in the early 20th century, the next major thing the Poe Society of Baltimore does is they, again, thanks to a story in the Baltimore Sun, see that a group of buildings, and one building in particular on the western side of town, is scheduled for demolition to make way for new housing and new buildings. It was the projects, right. They wanted to subsidize housing for people who were um, 
financially stressed. And so they left into action and worked very hard. And within a couple of years, they then obtained what is now known as the um, the Poe House and Museum in Baltimore, which is a house on Amity Street where Poe lived for a few years in the early 1830s. And then um, they and, are... And that was really chiefly, yeah, Meg Garrison Evans uh, did all, she was president of the Poe Society at that time. She had to actually work out from water documents and maps and various things. Uh, it was originally a duplex, uh, which was still standing at the time, but they didn't want to save the entire building. They only wanted to save the half that Poe lived in, so she actually had to work out <laughs> specifically which part of the building Poe had, had lived in. That was all they were going to preserve. And that's probably, again, like all things in, in this life, due to how much money uh, an organization can muster and what they can do to twist uh, the city fathers to uh, uh, and any private individuals who were behind the uh, projects. Right, and they were not interested particularly in preserving Poe's house. The, not in were, those days. They were no. trying to create this project for as a housing development. I mean, this was a big thing, uh, a big civic project. Uh, the Poe house was actually an unwelcome surprise. It got in their way. Yeah. Uh, and the Post Society never owned the house. We paid, I think, you know, a token dollar a year rent uh, when we ran it. And the city still owns it. Uh, Poe Baltimore runs the house now. And, uh, and, and, and Poe Baltimore pays some nominal rent um, as well. And it's always been this sort of um, tension between the care and feeding of it. The, the Post Society was very much behind that for a number of years. And, um, you know, it depends on the energy and the chutzpah of individuals and how much time they can put into something that is not a money-making thing, but is done out of a sense of history, a sense of love for Edgar Allan Poe. And um, so yeah, we actually, we actually incorporated because we were taking over the house, because we had to have insurance and, and we, you know, there were certain expenses and things that were particular that you needed to have an incorporated status. And we ran it until... I think it was 1977. So that was we had turned over responsibility before I joined the Poe Society. Uh, we right. turned that over to the city because Al Rose, who was running the society at that time, couldn't get enough volunteers anymore. It's always a battle, and uh, it's 77 that. Um, what does uh, the acronym CHAP stand for? Um, city Housing. Mission for Historical and Architectural Preservation. I believe that's that is. right. And and for uh, a couple of decades, and uh, that's about the time they hired. Um, Soon after that, they hired Jeff Jerome as the curator. Who, uh, who had been the assistant curator when the Poe uh, Society ran it under um, Sam Papora. Right, right. When Sam Papora was really a tourism person with Baltimore, and he was tied to Westminster Hall. The, the, at that time, it was still Westminster Presbyterian Church. Right, and I, right, actually right. Went on, I actually went on the tour. Sam Papora gave us the tour in 1976 of the cemetery, uh, and at the time told us all of these stories, which only now I realize were mostly made up. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, there's so many, I, I, I don't want to digress at any point here, but you mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, Chris Scharf earlier, and I knew him because of similar circles. My uh, uh, good friend, uh, Sean Paul Murphy, who's a writer and a film editor who edited some of my films, knew Chris and ran in Chris's circles with um, film and video work. And oddly enough, this is a small world. When it was still Westminster Presbyterian Church, an, a playwright friend of mine, Thomas E. Cole, his father was the, the, the pastor or the minister, rather, there, um, and, and was the last minister of record before it uh, closed as a functioning uh, church. So the city runs it, and then, as a lot of people uh, know who have been involved, uh, Poe Baltimore, Inc., uh, now has that responsibility yep. responsibility and that relationship. With the yeah, city. the city decided that it, they did not want to run any of the museums that they had slowly acquired over the years. That start, it just wasn't a function that they wanted to do in the city. So much of their money uh, was needed to go to other things, I suppose, even though it's a, it's a big tourist draw. It, it really is, and that's one of the – see, you know, um, I – coming out of Towson University about the same time you did in the 80s, there was a flourish of activity, the City Life Museums in Baltimore. 1840 the House. 1840 House. I worked at these places, the, the President Street Station uh, Civil War Museum. I did uh, live theater there for the fans and the tourists. 
and it was vibrant. And there were, on my end, you know, there were educators and writers and actors. Um, School for the Arts was involved with these people, and MPT, Maryland Public Television, did things. It was a vibrant living history museum time. And as quickly as that flared up in the 80s, it all started to erode and be this constant battle uh, of, oh, the city doesn't want to, you know, the shorthand is the city just doesn't want to pay for it. And we, and I think all cities deal with that. Baltimore particularly cursed in a sad way. And it is a huge, you know, when Baltimore wants to, and you, everybody knows I love Baltimore, but when Baltimore wants to, they trot Poe out and they use Poe and they're tourists. I played Edgar Allan Poe in Florida, in Miami Beach of all things, uh, as part of a Baltimore tourist come to Baltimore kind of thing. And that was when, uh, uh, oh, that was a thousand years ago. And I went down with the Ravens, a couple of Ravens met Poe, the Ravens mascot. And the whole event was meet and greet and come to Baltimore and bring your convention to Baltimore. So, you know, Baltimore likes to trot Poe out, but, you know, it would be nice if they did a little bit more. But thank goodness for, again, individuals the 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 current group that is uh and you're on the board of poe baltimore inc i believe currently i am on the board yes and uh you know so so thank you for that and thank you for the current people who are keeping the house open clean and and alive um i was involved a little bit in the transition uh for about six months working with the bno railroad museum and the first director and 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 uh, uh getting things together and um but let's jump back to your timeline because now you're you've joined the the Edgar Allan Poe Society, and I made uh, I made reference to the fact that people get older or they pass on, they pass away, and new generations come on. So what's the transition into uh, from when you joined in what 1985 or something to 83? Your role now because because 1983. Yep, 1983. Well, um, Al, Al Rose uh, was running the society at that time, and uh, he knew a sucker when he saw one. <laughs> and uh, he made me, let's see, I think originally I was, he invented a title. So I was post-society bibliographer. Ah. And my original assignment was to come up with a list of standard works about Poe, because in those days we would get letters from students and people interested in Poe, and we would write responses. Then I became corresponding secretary, and I actually wrote those responses. Right. Um, and I was very interested in uh, trying to do, even at that point, you know, trying to work out what the texts of Poe were. So I had the Hartman Canny bibliography of Poe's works, which is very incomplete, but it was a, an important early attempt at that. And I did manage at some point to buy the Mabbitt set of the poems and the tales and sketches, mm. uh, the reprinted edition, but still not the paperback, but you know, the 1978 edition, they redid the poems when the tales and sketches came out. Uh, and through the Poe Society, I actually got to meet some of these people that I had known because I had been reading articles. So I knew John Ostrom, who did Poe's letters originally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I came later to be very good friends with Burton Pollan, who sort of took over from Mabbitt in, in doing the edition that Mabbitt had been working on for 40 years and then died without actually completing. He only, mm. he, he only finished the, the volume of the poems. He was able to read the proof copy and died right at that point. His widow uh, and some of his former assistants then spent the next 10 years finalizing the notes for the Tales and Sketches volumes and, and getting those to press. Uh, and, I, and I did meet Mrs. Mabbitt. Um, at one point, uh, a couple of times we 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 had lunch once or twice, and I met her in her her rooms at Medford Lees in, in New Jersey. Anyway, I was a, I was a Poe groupie uh, because I was very interested in uh, the things that these people were producing. Mabbitt has always sort of been a, uh, a spiritual mentor uh, to me. I liked his approach to Poe in many cases. Um, the one thing that is frustrating is he would frequently make a statement and wouldn't really explain all of the background to how he made that statement, explain why he had that particular position. Um, And one of the things I have done since then is, in many cases, I've either provided some of that background or corrected his assumptions, um, somewhat presumptuous in in a way, but uh, that really is what we're supposed to do as scholars. You're supposed to build on the work of previous scholars, add to it, make corrections, refine it, that sort of thing. It really is a living thing. 
It really, it really it, yes, it's, it's all, and people have corrected some of the things, and I know in some of the articles I've printed, I, there are some small things, hopefully, but uh, there are some errors. Mm-hmm. Um, when computers started to come in, uh, PCs... I, I wanted to ask you about that. Was that your idea to begin to try to build what is now this beautiful, evolving site, eapo.org? Was that your idea in the 80s to start... Well, originally, I I started working as a as a mainframe programmer in um, 1985, and uh, one of the first things I did is I bought a personal computer. It was a Compact Desk Pro. Mm-hmm. I think it mm-hmm. had a 30 megabyte hard drive, which seemed like it was bigger than I could ever possibly use. Now yeah. you can't even install software in that. It right. had an amber screen. That was the big thing at the time, and it had a built-in uh, graphics card. So it was much crisper text, or if you had images, although it was still only going to show them in, in amber instead of green. Um, again, that was the big thing at the time. You just did a little key combination, and then you could get the crisper text. Anyway, that was the big thing right then. And I started to try to look at the idea of doing electronic texts just for myself, for the idea of being able to study the texts, to be able to kind of compare them and uh it turned out to be very difficult because there wasn't a standardized format for that. I could use a text file, but then you really couldn't mark italics and bold, well, bolding not so much, but you, know, you really couldn't do any formatting in it. Right. Yeah, was, yeah. It, was, it, it was a line indented. I guess you could put spaces, but you really couldn't do italics and things like that. So it was, it was very limited. Uh, I was using WordPerfect and LetterPerfect. Uh, those were proprietary, so that wasn't terribly helpful. You really couldn't search on those files once you saved them because they did compression. So there were a lot of limitations, but it did get me started in trying to work out what were all of the texts. Mabbitt lists things, although he doesn't always differentiate between an authorized text and a mere reprint. Uh, He's not always consistent in how he does that, and that does become an important thing uh, because there are lots of reprints that are just sort of generic reprints of the works. They don't add anything to our understanding of what Poe intended because they're merely printing it from someplace else. But that gets to be complicated because sometimes Poe encouraged that reprint, and he may have sent the copy, uh, the famous example was for Annie, which was first printed in the Boston Flag of our Union in 1849, but was very embarrassed to be associated with this rather cheap, popular newspaper. So uh, he took a clipping of the poem, made some uh, modifications to it, and sent it to N.P. Willis, his, his sort of friend, uh, at the Home Journal to get them to reprint it someplace that would be more more prominent. Um so there's a case where it is a reprint, but it's a revised reprint with a direct connection to Poe. So its specific text becomes important in the history of texts. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I really did not understand textual criticism. I was just sort of interested in this. Mabbitt lists, he, he picks a best text for the most part, and he gives variants at the bottom of, of the pages. And there's a key that, that goes back, so you can sort of see that in this area, there's a little bit of a difference. And you look at the bottom, and you sort of see what the difference is. He's primarily doing verbal variants. Uh, sometimes for manuscripts, he'll include punctuation and things like that. But mostly he's dealing with uh, obvious a, a new word or a series of words or a section of the famous paragraph that's taken out of Berenice in later versions, for example. The opening paragraph of uh, the Oval Portrait, for example, where Poe cuts that out when he reprints it in the Broadway Journal, his, his own uh, magazine under his own control. Right, right. So that, you know, Mabbitt prints the Oval Portrait text that he considers to be the last authorized version without that paragraph, and then in the variants he gives that whole paragraph. Uh, the story actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense without that paragraph, so not printing it at all, which is what some editions do, you're, you're losing what Poe was originally uh, intending and what he was going for. So um, the website started in 95, um, right. because by then the Internet was an existing thing, and HTML solved the problem I had had with uh, proprietary files and uh, text files. It included formatting capabilities, and there was a way of displaying it. It was all built into browsers. So initially, I was just sort of experimenting. I had a little bit of space with my Internet. I got an Internet access, uh, a host service, just so I could do email, basically, and, and read stuff on the Internet. Um, and they gave me a very small, I think it was like a megabyte of storage, which was not much at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned enough about HTML to start creating a page and just sort of playing with it to see what I could really do. And initially, I put up material that was related to standard stuff that we would send out in response to general inquiries. 
if someone didn't have a particular thing that they were looking about for Poe, a particular piece of information, uh, what kind of hat did Poe wear? What, what was the name of his cat? You know, a, a very very detailed kind of question. And we've gotten all sure. of those. Yeah. Uh, did Poe smoke? That, that was you know, a question we got from a bunch of people. Um, if, if it was general, we would put this general information out there. So that list of standard works, for example, was one of the first pages that went out there. A brief history of the Poe Society. At that time, we were still selling pamphlets from our annual lecture series, so that went on the website. Uh, some general information about Poe. I think it's when I wrote the first draft for something about Poe drugs and alcohol, a common theme, Poe's death, a common theme. Uh, just and very and even, if, if I may interrupt for a moment, sure. even then, what I like, and of course I'm looking at the current website, but I'm going to bet a dollar that even then you were trying to correct myth mythology, you were trying to correct false information about these basic things in his life that people still get wrong and they love to trot out when they like Poe at Halloween. In other words, um, he becomes this unfortunate melancholy poster child for, you know, the, the common mis mistaken thing that he took drugs, that he took laudanum, that he was an a raging alcoholic in in the in the most melodramatic sense that we know alcoholism today but there's color and there's context and there's shading and i think what i'm trying to do in this interruption is basically say i'm going to bet that you even then started to correct things about his life as became becomes as much as an important thing to do as it is look at what we are uncovering about letters and, and text and his work. Um, I yeah, right. I would say, looking back on it now, this hasn't really occurred to me until this moment, but I think, I, in a way, I was trying to sort of recreate that epiphany moment that I had in uh, college, yeah. uh, where there was a huge gap between what I thought I knew about Poe and what had been documented and corrected and... and uh, what scholars had done in, in, the, in the meantime from what I had originally known or thought I knew. Um, so I think I was looking at it from that perspective. And one of the things I have always tried to do with a website is I, it is aimed, obviously, uh, and perhaps increasingly, at a college or very advanced high school level and above. Yeah. Um, but I did want it to be available for people who were, were casually interested in Poe, and maybe wanted to have a little bit better information, a little bit more information, maybe wanted to see what scholarship about Poe, or in general what scholarship looked like. Uh, so initially I started, I did that sort of basic information, and uh, we moved the site, we got some space at the University of Baltimore, we were much more closely tied to the University of Baltimore at that point, uh, still from Al Rose, having taught there for many years. And... Uh, of course, Rao Rose died in 1995, so by this time he had, he had passed on. Yeah. We got a little bit of space, but it was a crazily long URL to get to, because you couldn't do a domain name that was specific. You had to do it, and it was Raven, Ubalt, EDU, something. It was just really long. <laughs> um, and they also did not want to give us a lot of space, and it was awkward to get it updated. So, um, I, so many it there for, yeah, sure. yeah, it was there for a couple of years, and, I, and it was when it was there that I started to add... Uh, the texts, and I started with the poems because there were not as many of them to do, and the text right. wasn't as long as for the, the tales uh, and other things. But uh, it, then eventually I, we got a, we got a domain service, uh, Loosefoot Computer Hosting, which is where it still is. Got the domain name eapoe.org. I wanted po.org, but it was already taken by a band. So, oh. so I, could, I could not get that, so I had to add ea to it. I didn't want it to be long. I didn't want to do Edgar Allan Poe, partly because no one would ever get Allen right. You know, they, they would always do A-L-L-E-N, which is the wrong one. You know, hardly anybody would, would be able to find it, so I just did E-A-P-O-E.org. That sort of worked out. And uh, I did. It, and when I was working on trying to do these texts, I was sort of thinking, well, what do I do? Which text do I use? And I was trying to think, well, what do I do that's different than just a book? There are lots of books. I mean, there's the Mabbitt edition of the tales and the sketches and the poems that already existed. What was I going to do that Mabbitt really didn't do or couldn't do? And so I was thinking, ah, I'll put all of the texts, all the versions out there, rather than yeah. trying to make people reconstruct them from the variants, which you really can't do very effectively. Right. I'll, put, I'll 
do it in each version. So I'll go through and list all the versions, what they are, and I'll do each individual text. So when you do a poem like Tamerlane, I do it from the 1827 edition. And then when it was reprinted in the 1829 edition, I do that version. Uh, and I include its pagination because I see these things as uh, they're sort of artifacts on their in their own right to some extent. And if you were going yeah. to do something yeah. and you were going to refer to it, you needed to have the page number for the original material, you know, which you don't really have a sense of pages that way on a website unless you put a little tag of some sort there. So I started to do that, and that was very helpful actually in proofing things, especially when they got into longer text, because uh, it gives me a way of, of sort of where, where am I in this long stream of, of text. Um, so we started, I was doing all of that, and I did all the poems first. And at that time, there were really only two other websites that were more or less dedicated to Poe. There was Peter Forrest's House of Usher, which mm-hmm. was run by uh, someone in Canada, uh, French-Canadian. And it was mostly a collection of links to other things that had to do with Poe a little bit. Um, It had a couple of of Poe's basic stories and poems in it, but there wasn't an awful lot there. And then there was uh, Christopher Nelson's, uh, Chris's Poe pages. And Mm. he was from Denmark, I believe. Copenhagen, I think, is actually where he's from. Um, And it had, it's a big thing, it had, again, a, a few links to things, a few of Poe's basic, so it had Casca Montiato, it had the Raven, you know, some of the, the, you know, the big heavy hitters that way. But it didn't Raven, have a lot yeah, of, yeah. and, and it, they were sort of indifferently edited, they were not properly identified, they gave the date of publication, even though they were really taken from an edited edition, mostly they were taken from the Raven edition of, of 1905. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't take credit for that. And Gutenberg, uh, the Gutenberg organization had uh, been collecting electronic texts. In fact, I had sent them several. They were not interested in multiple texts, though. So oh. uh, I kind of cut that connection, and they, they got somebody to actually do the Raven edition again, just to type it all in, because that's really all they kind of wanted to do. They were not interested in, the, in what I was trying to do uh, with multiple copies of text. There was like any publisher who's going to print a book with 18 versions of manuscripts found in a bottle. Right, right. Uh, and, and many of the differences are fairly small. So, um, but still in all, what what serendipity, yeah, for your what becomes your paying job, your life's work, uh, to marry with uh, your passion for Poe's life and work, to create. Jeff, the the you know eapo.org is invaluable. Um, I could not, you know, I'm working on alone the life of Poe, my dramatization biography of Poe, and. Dramatization, biography is, is tough. It's hard. You, it, is, it is as much a reflection on the biographer as the subject. And I'm, I'm really trying to play within all of the reality of that. And I have to tell you that your work, and uh, just by organizing it and presented, presenting it, has been invaluable to me. And one of my prized possessions is, and, and, and uh, you're not doing a lot of print uh, publishing. But the society did publish uh, Poe's Collected Letters, a new edition. Of, Actually, uh, uh, it was Gordian Press who did the uh, they did the reprint of, of Ostrom's edition in 1966. Ah. Um, and, and that's, again, sort of, it is funny how these things all do fit together. Oh, I mean, here I'm a computer programmer, so I have a technical understanding that lent itself to understanding HTML. HTML is very much like some earlier mainframe products that did you know, text markup. Uh, we had a, there was a product called Zix that Xerox did, and it does the same thing. It actually even gives them, you know, you, you in uh, greater than, less than angle brackets. Uh, you put an I for italics and that sort of thing. Um, there was an IBM product called Bookmaker, very similar again. So the concepts I already had to some extent as I had worked with those products. Um, and it let me keep my hand in again even more so with the, uh, the English background. Um, I started with the texts of the works, and then uh, I had to do the letters of because they were part of Poe's works. I still am working on the criticism, because a lot of that isn't really identified, so that's probably the weakest side of it, although most people are really interested in sort of a handful of of the poems and the tales and some of the essays. Um, But I put all the letters online. Because I had put the letters online, when Burton Pollan was interested in doing a new edition of the Ostrom letters, uh, because they had uh, Ostrom had died by that point, and they had uh, Gordian Press bought the copyright from his estate. Mm. And uh, uh, Burton Pollan was continuing the Mabbitt edition. Mabbitt uh, was had to been dealing with Harvard University Press, 
they were not interested in continuing beyond the three volumes that Mabbitt had done, even though Mabbitt had planned more than that. Uh, but Burton had sort of inherited that mantle, and he was doing you know, arguably more obscure things. Though they started with uh, Arthur Gordon Pym, Journal Julius Rodman, uh, Adventures of Holland's Fall, a volume called The Imaginary Voyages, which were not in the, in the, the shorter tales. And then uh, he afterwards he did a Broadway Journal volume, Southern Larry Messenger volume. And a lot of that is more editorial material. It's, it's reviews, it's criticism, it's sort of miscellaneous stuff. Much more esoteric. Uh, not as broad an appeal, obviously, as the basic short stories and the poems. But he had been working on that. So now he was, he was into the poems as part of that series. And uh, originally he wanted to print the uh, Mostrum edition had come out in 1948 in two volumes, and uh, when it was being reprinted by Gordon Press in 66, Ostrom found out about this and wanted to... He printed several supplements, mostly in American literature, a very well-known magazine, academic magazine. So he adopt, adapted those uh, reprinted... Um, adapted those materials and some other things that he'd been collecting and created a supplement. Well, that makes the volume fairly annoying to use, unfortunately. It's not included in the index, so they just reprinted the 1948 volume with that old index, and then the supplement is appended oh. to that. So you always had to go in and look at the letter, and then you had to look in the supplement to see whether or not there's an improvement of the text or correction, uh, or if there's something that fits between two letters if you were looking for the chronology of them. Uh, and he he heavily revised the checklist of the letters in, I think it was 1981. It was one of the last things that he did before he died. Uh, and obviously that was not in the 66 edition, though we were going to have to incorporate that. So what Burton originally wanted to do was to reissue the volumes as they had been issued in 1966, which is already a clunky, difficult thing to use, and add two new supplements. He was going to write a supplement of corrections to the Ostrom material. I see, yeah. And, and he wanted me to write a supplement that was all of the new letters and the improved texts that had turned up in the intervening years, because there were quite a few. Um, and the publisher, in looking at all of this, realized that it, no one could really use this thing. <laughs> uh, it was a kind of um, Frankenstein. To... Right. It was such a hodgepodge of material, it would be really, really difficult to use. And I still remember yeah. the conversation with Burton on the phone and Roger Texier, who ran the press, sort of saying, and somewhat in despair, because Burton was thinking that here we, we weren't going to be able to do this. So, well, what do we really need to do? And I had said, well, the only thing we could really do would be to rework the entire edition as, and make right. it a cohesive presentation. And Ben Burton said, um, well, who would do that, <laughs> incredulously? <laughs> and I very foolishly said, I will. And so, it, and um, it took how long? Because I have a memory over, you know, we would see each other uh, two, three times a year at Poe events. And, I and I'd be sitting there proofreading the, the material. I, Exactly. And it's yep. like, oh, Jeffrey, come join the party. I'm reading. Nope, I'm, I'm proofing. I'm proofing. <laughs> well, it took us eight years to do this thing, and I wish we'd had a little bit more time. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it did take eight years. I, I scanned all of the, uh, the the existing volumes, and I took Burton's material. I took my material. And I also had corrections and improvements to notes from uh, the stuff that was already existed, not just text of, of the new letters. Uh, I re rearranged all of it by the letter. And uh, you know, we just kept going through it, and I would send him drafts, and, and he would make suggestions or complain about something, and I'd try to address that. Uh, and eventually, uh, I prepared it as in WordPerfect as um, digital text so that it could be reproduced right from a PDF. Right. Uh, so we didn't have to have anybody else typeset it. We had control over it completely. So any typos anybody finds in there, those are my fault. Um, and but marvelous, marvelous, and, and brilliant work. And then I spent a year just doing the subject index, but now the subject index covered everything. Yeah. And it was a much more detailed uh, subject index than what Ostrom had done. Um, and that's really the way to use a volume like that. So I, I, it was worth the effort to, to do that, and it's held up pretty well. So unfortunately, we have turned up a number of new letters, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, so it's a little out of date, although I have the advantage because I now have the copyright, and I have it on the website, uh, and I have the actual letter text as a separate set of things. I can link the two things together. Wonderful. Um, and that does tie into, you know, once I did the basic Poe texts, I was trying to get material about Poe. I was trying to expand the stuff that would tell us 
about Poe. So a lot of that is out of copyright, so that's not terribly difficult. I can put the Ingram biography, uh, both versions of that online. I can put the Woodbury edition of the uh, his biography like, online. Yeah, I like the Ingram biography. Uh, it's very dated in many ways, but it's also very important. He came along just at the right time. He could still communicate with people who had known Poe personally. Yeah. Um, and which is dicey in and of itself, but right. And, and his collection is, is is invaluable at the University of Virginia. Fourteen of the materials ended up there eventually after his death. Um, I knew Dwight Thomas, of who did the Poe log, mm. and that was a very difficult book to buy. And Dwight had uh, had rights. To, the rights had reverted to him because the press had declined to reprint it. They did a paperback edition, but they declined to reprint the edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he had rights to that. And certainly for electronic purposes, when he originally signed the the agreement, there were there were no such things as electronic rights. And uh, he was very interested in it being available online for free. Right. Uh, and that is a, a key part of this whole thing is everything is available for free. And I don't make people register. I don't make people – I don't inundate people with emails trying to raise money. It is no. truly it is truly free. We are a nonprofit organization, and we are trying to spread information, responsible information about Poe. And to really do that, you have to make it – you know, no strings attached. It's brilliant. And But let me interject this for the listener, that if you, if you did want to help aid and abet – the maintenance of this marvelous online repository of all of this wonderful stuff, eapo.org. Membership to the Edgar Allan Poe Society is very inexpensive, and there's a membership button that you can find out more about it. Uh, so I just needed to get that in there because you have no idea how it's appreciated. Other websites, you know, my website is for fun, and it's to promote the Poe work we're doing. The museum websites are to, they must do what museums must do to raise money. This is why museums have gift shops. This is, you know, so it's a hybrid of entertainment and, and, and facts, and it's very slim. But this is the one-stop shop. And, if you, and so I urge people that if you wanted to become a member, it's very inexpensive, and, and, and it would help out. Because uh, I know that you've, you know, like everybody with a passion, you've put your, so much of your time in your life in, in all of this, and you, that ends up meaning translating into money as well. What are you working on now? What do you, what do you, can you talk about anything in your... Well, I'm always adding things to the website, making corrections, little details here and there. I, uh, I'm always writing articles. Um, I'm working on an article now for the Post Studies Association's convention in Boston, uh, so I've been working on that. As I said, I have uh, a number of articles. I'm always working on four or five articles at the same time. Frequently, they're driven off of something that I started on the website. Um, it is somewhat funny. I did a uh, someone asked me to do an essay on uh, the first four scholarly attempts at doing a collection of Poe's works. So it's the Griswold edition, the Ingram edition, the Stedman Woodbury edition, and the Harrison edition. Mm. And it's it's for a collection called Anthologizing Poe, which is supposed to be coming out of the press. Uh, in the next several months, I think. I'm waiting to, see, waiting to see the proof pages for that. But as part of that, there was a whole section I was doing on the Griswold edition, which started as a footnote, much too long, much too detailed for a footnote. I had to pull it out, didn't really have any use for it. Then I was asked to do a plenary presentation at a conference in Spain. Ooh. And I didn't really have a topic, but I had this footnote I had started. And so I thought, well, that actually might be interesting if I expanded it and, and added some material. Let's see what I could do with that. So I did that for a presentation in Spain. Uh, and originally they were going to print a set of essays, which they didn't ultimately get enough things contributed. So then they were going to do a special issue in the Edgar Allan Poe Review, and uh, not enough papers were submitted or approved for that. But my paper was accepted, so it just got printed there. Um, uh, you know, but things tie into other things. So there's another article out of that. The article I'm working on for the 2021 actually also came out of a footnote for that variation of the art of the uh, uh, of the article. Partly again because on the website I'm always trying to list the bibliography and trying to get things as precisely as I can. When did Poe actually compose this? Because that can be tricky. Yule mm-hmm. Lee was not published until 1845, but Poe clearly had written it by 1843. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to work out all those little details that my, this paper I'm working on right now completely turns the dating of the manuscripts for Annabelle Lee on it, on their head. Oh, um, wow. So uh, it, it, you know, it's ultimately a fairly minor point. Uh, the textual differences are fairly small, 
but it does answer some interesting questions. Uh, there's a sort of a biographical aspect to it that becomes interesting as to when Poe actually wrote these versions, why he had them all with him on his trip down into uh, Virginia when he came back through Baltimore and died. Um, and I think that's all sort of interesting. All of these things are little mysteries that you can sort of tie up. There's a lot of conjecture, but you can actually, you can actually have a fair number of facts uh, mixed in at the same time. Absolutely, because it is an archaeology. Uh, uh, you know, today a writer of uh, any stature can have leave an enormous track and footprint, uh, all kinds of notes, computer logs, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, to even if you talk to no one who knew him uh, or her, uh, you could put a writer's life together. There's there's there's, there's much more than Poe was able to leave behind. Poe is as popular, more so, actually, than he's ever been. I think you'd agree with that. And um, I'm going to say it for the fifth and sixth final time. Again, thank you for this website and all of this work that you're doing. I'm going to wrap things up and, and let you go so that we can have our Poe birthday cake together uh, uh, separately, uh, as this is a phone conversation. Um, and we should do maybe another one around Poe's, the anniversary of his death and it's going to be a little trickier because I'm much busier at that time of year with the uh, annual lectures. So, Well, here's what we'll have to do. We'll have to set time aside in the spring since and, and just have a, a, the theme of the mystery of Poe's death and, you know, more of the uh, work that uh, because he, he is just simply everywhere uh, today in a way that I don't think he was at any other time, even when. Uh, Hollywood uh, and independent films, you know, the Roger Corman films, you know, the, the things that were inspired by his stories and poems were being made. I think he's more popular today than he's ever been, and it just continues to grow, I think. Um, Although it is sort of the mythic Poe that is of, of primary popularity. Uh, so when you get a and, movie like The Raven, which really has almost nothing to do with <laughs> Poe, except he's a character that's been appropriated for their, for that purpose. And even the Corman things. I mean, the, the Fall of the House of Usher film has some resemblance to Poe's story, although they invent a love story, that, that, a subplot that's not in the story. The Mask of the Red Death mixes in Hop Frog. There are at least two Poe stories, and they do have some overlap in, and, uh, uh, in, in theme. Jeff By the time you get to the Haunted Palace, though, it's a Lovecraft story, and they just slap Poe's name on it because he was more at that time he was more popular. Lovecraft is growing in popularity now, so he is. The, um, he's um, and has a, a similar fandom, but kind of different. That's another conversation too. That's just been my experience um, out among the public. Uh, but um, yeah, no, obviously, and I think um, in my young old age, I've relaxed. Uh, about things like the, the John Cusack film, The Raven. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up with all of those AIP, Roger Corman, uh, Vincent Price adaptations, Ray Milland. Fun. I love them to this day. I know you enjoy them. They are what they are, and they are simply inspired by Poe's works. Yeah, you, have to, Poe. you have to take them on their own, on their own merits. And on their own merits, they're, they're so enjoyable. Um, uh, but you can't go wrong with Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> they tried remaking and, them, and I don't think they've been able to do it because he doesn't have someone who can pull off quite the way that uh, that Price did. Well, you know, even when they did do some remaking of these, and Corman himself, in the flashpoint heavy video days of the eighties, remade some direct-to-video through his. Um, not New World. New World was defunct by then, and he had sold it off. New Concord Pictures or whatever. Lance Henriksen and some other actors appeared in these, and they went direct to video, or they went to cable, you know, when cable exploded um, in the early days. And they're not remembered, and they're not trotted out. Uh, and, right. and, and even, even the Ray Milland one, which was done more or less in the, at the time of the Price ones, it, it, doesn't, have this, it doesn't have the same following. No, it, it really doesn't. And so... Um, that's a whole other conversation. You know, my attitude these days, I used to get a little persnickety to be, oh, my God, you know, I, like a lot of people, you know, turn my nose up. Do we need this remake? Wired? But you know what? This is what I think these days. Let them remake everything. It gives people employment, gives them work. And I can point to you historically that remakes generally tend to be bad and they do not overshadow the original and they kind of disappear. 
I could list you 10, 20 remakes of films that you had no idea got remade on any budget, on any level. So let them employ people. Let them keep remaking things. Um, it's not going to obliterate the, the original. No, it's and, a little irritating when the people doing the remake don't understand the original, apparently. Um, and that, sure, there's a lot of... Yeah, I mean, the Dark Shadows there. movie is not nearly as much fun as the old show was. Um, it isn't. It isn't. But I'll argue back that the Dark Shadows... I, I did this to myself. I, I, I bought the DVDs years ago and why I, I have them too in the in the coffin shape with Barnabas Collins on the back. They are <laughs> they are much um they are much more tedious than I remembered them being. <laughs> Bingo, exactly. They 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 and I don't remember them. I remember the highlights and I uh, and, and I knew the the, the, the acting was often bad and they stepped on their lines and you'd see prop men in the background that sort of thing. That's part of the fun of watching the show is is sort of poking holes in it. But, but it's but the I plot mean, moves it is so ponderous. But at least on DVD you could you can watch them a whole bunch of them back to back and actually something happens if you watch enough of them. And and that's exactly the point because if you you know the cliche which is true for a generation of people who loved the show was they ran home from school. Yes, and they caught it at, at you know because it was the perfect timing, and the funny thing is is that what one learns and they had introduced actually, Barnabas Collins for me by then. I did not oh, I yeah. did not see the early episodes. Well, I don't know. I might have seen the Phoenix uh, storyline, but uh, Barnabas to... Barnabas is what I really remembered, and that's what why you were headed home. <laughs> Abs- absolutely, and I and then by I had then the Barnabas was... Collins game. The board game. Oh, me too. And by then it was a parade of monsters. There was the Frankenstein storyline. There was. Quentin yep. the werewolf, but the thing that you learn is that I had to go back. To and they ripped the, off Poe, of course. <laughs> of course, and I had to go back to look at the the earlier episodes on DVD with uh, Winters, uh, the you know the the, the the gothic romance trappings that started the thing before the vampire, before Dan Curtis brought Barnabas Collins into it. But the thing I find fascinating is that as an adult, when I first started watching them, and I and I did sort of binge watch. Uh, you, you know, you watch them every day. You kept anticipating something cool happening. But when you look at the DVDs years later as an adult, you realize that they came out like a lion on Monday with a storyline. And then they had to stretch. Yes. They had to stretch from Tuesday to Thursday. And they didn't give you anything really cool until Friday. To when was a cliffhanger that you had to wait for the next Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, there's so much, uh, so much. Uh, I'd love to have a conversation with you about Poe and popular culture, and you know, puncturing the myths, you know, that grow out of his death. And we've, we've, you've mentioned Griswold uh, a number of times in today's chat, and uh, Griswold is his own conversation. Um, well, but, uh, but definitely a key figure in formulating the the mythology of Poe. Exactly, and I think it is it is worth discussing him in context, trying to have a conversation understanding him, uh, because even even serious Poe fans, he is, you know, he is uh, Poe's Moriarty, you know. Uh, he is Poe's Joker. He is Poe's arch enemy. And uh, he's a fascinating, complex character. And ironically, uh, I think he unintentionally made Poe more interesting and sellable than than. It would have been perhaps without his intervention. I, you're absolutely right, and this is the direct heartline to the Gothic Poe we celebrated Halloween, and that's my generalization of lumping Poe into, you know, the other iconic images of melancholy and darkness and Halloween. You know, bats and black cats, and you know, all of that kind of thing. It's, there's a direct line right there that, um, you know, that's the vine. He's the core of it that all the vine has grown around, and. Uh, you know, I think what's fascinating for me when I embarked on deciding to do Alone the Life of Poe was it, it made me spend a lot of time looking at minutia and details and context of the different decades that Poe lived through before he was born in 1809 and after his death, what the world was like, trying to grasp that. I think that helped me understand Poe, and whether that comes out in the dramas, I don't know. But um, my my interest in him has actually, yes, I'm ready to be done with Alone the Life of Poe this year. That needs to get off my plate. I need to move on to other things. But it has not diminished my interest in him. I, my interest is, is deepened in, and uh, is expanded. Um, so it's Poe has opened up a journey for me, too, uh, more recently. 
than your life's journey and your life's work. But uh, keep on keeping on. The the history of scholarship about Poe is sort of fascinating to me. Uh, It becomes rather meta at some point. But just seeing the evolving attitude towards Poe, both a popular one and a scholarly one, how Poe's reputation sort of gets redeemed by the, the monument in Baltimore in 1875 and that sort of thing. Yeah. It, I find that fascinating. Poe really is a gateway into all sorts of interesting topics of the of the times. Definitely, definitely. Well, happy Poe Day. Happy, happy Poe po Day. Day. And I look forward to talking to you again very, very soon. Thank you for um, thank you for catching up. It's been great. I hope something at least in there was interesting. Oh, it's all interesting. It's very good. Thank you. From Redfield Arts Audio, available now worldwide on Audible. Jeffrey Combs, Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe. Written by Dennis Paoli. Directed by Stuart Gordon. Recorded before a live audience. You are here this evening, no doubt, to hear yours truly recite the most popular poem ever written upon these shores. <laughs> for, for many years, my, uh, my, my stories, my tales, that more popular than my poetry. And magazines and readership just demanded, oh, new tale, every issue. Oh, God, do you hear it? Louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the need. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. This program copyright the Mark Redfield Company. Discover our newest audiobook releases at redfieldartsaudio.com.